Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. something to chew on and think about this morning. I want you to just think about this. What did Jesus mean when he said, truly, I tell you? Truly, I tell you. What's the significance of that phrase? So I'm going to try to set that up for you this morning a little bit. Before I do that, I do want to give you an update because we had sort of a historic week and weekend last week. We kicked off a this whole big thing we're calling the Legacy Project, and so wanted to give you a little update. Are you ready for an update? Yeah. All right, here's how it went down. So uh, you collectively, with our Pasadena campus, you, uh, you committed last Sunday and through the course of this week to raise $3.2 million towards this project. So thank you. And I want to get into the guts of that a little bit, because not only did you commit to do that, but you actually passed in uh, about 700000 maybe $750,000 this past week towards that, which is just money we don't have to borrow. Yeah. And in addition, so many of you front-loaded your commitments that by the end of this year, another 750000 was committed. Uh, which means by the end of the first year, we'll be far, far into the money we need to raise. Which is good, because the other piece of information for you is that the board met this week and passed the resolutions necessary to sign the contracts to begin the construction and secure the funding. And so you can expect within the next few weeks uh, to see uh, ground broken and more specifically things go away. Uh, the, the two houses next door will go first. Uh, uh, two weeks from Monday, the abatement folks will arrive to make sure we don't have hazardous waste, and uh, then we are free to take those apart. Uh, you might want to do your farewell tour of our luxury restrooms. <laughs> they will be here through Easter, but post-Easter, you will no longer be able to use those facilities. They will no longer exist. So, uh, which brings me to another point. Uh, as we make these commitments, we are going to ask you to do a couple things. If you made a commitment and you, you, know, you gave us some information, this is what happened. A lot of you wrote us little notes to clarify what your intentions are, and they didn't help us at all. Uh, in fact, confused us a great deal. <laughs> so, uh, so would you be sure that you go into the planning center or hand in a paper card? Here's the be-all to end-all. There is a line on that card that says, I intend to give this much in the life of this campaign. That's the number that really helps us because we don't know sometimes, did you mean on the fourth Sunday of the fifth month in the second year when Aquarius? We didn't really understand everything you were trying to tell us. So if you could simplify that for us, that would be awesome. Would you also be sure that if you set up a recurring payment, it was coded to the right thing, so it's going to go to the right funding. And then the third thing I want to remind you of is, uh, I got a call this week, and uh, the person said, listen, uh, Special Olympics is coming up. We just know you're in the middle of a big thing that you're doing over there, and didn't know if you were still going to be active as a partner with Special Olympics. And I said, oh, we fully intend to still be in ministry full-time. <laughs> So, so don't forget that we are still in ministry full-time. I said to them, we're committed. You're our partner. We're going to send you the check, 
and we will be there uh, on Special Olympics Day with all of our volunteers. So go online, register. We'll give you more information about when and where, and all of that's coming up at the 1st of April. So uh, take note of all of that, and then just let me say thanks. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, and then I need to also remind you that in the next few months, there will be some inconvenience. You will have to behave yourself as if you are not Southern Californians. Do I need to clarify that statement? Remember, your ancestors were pioneers. They, they came here through much hardship. So there will be times when it is you'll have to step over some construction and we have a team committed to get this place as ready as possible. There'll be portable restrooms, which actually will be much nicer than the ones we have. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but be tough. There will probably come a time in this construction where we are pushed out of this room for a series of weeks. Uh, we're, we're suspecting now six to eight weeks, and you'll have to be flexible. Uh, we'll be online, but we'll be running multiple services at our Pasadena campus. And so you may have to drive, it's, it is eight miles, and I know that's a long way to go to worship God, but I think, I think we can do it. So let's just, together, this is so exciting, it's going to be an amazing transformation, and uh, it looks like about December 31st, we will be in the new building and the construction will be completely done. So it's going to be fast, so hang on to your hats, it's, uh, it's coming. And uh, let's just continue to pray. Pray that there are no surprises, pray that everything goes smoothly, pray that we bring this project in under budget, pray that uh, people continue to give. We're not up to the four million yet, but what a great, great start, and thank you. And I, I just couldn't be uh, more excited for and thankful for your faithfulness, so thanks. Truly I tell you. We believe around here in intergenerational ministry. You know, we, we like the idea that, you know, we don't need a church that's entirely made up of teenagers or 20-year-olds or 30-year-olds, but we certainly also don't think it's great when the church, you know, sort of is riding the escalator to nowhere, and then, you know, everyone is in their 60s or 70s or 80s, and, you know, but while we really need all of that representation... It's vital. It's, you know, our young people, whatever you consider that to be, uh, are not the church of tomorrow. They're the church of right now. They're the church of today, and we value that. And so one of the things we do as a team is we try to get uh, our younger minds working on preaching material and content. And so Colton Brink, our high school young adult pastor, he, he put together this series for us. And so, uh, the, truly, I tell you. And so then he also conceived all the artwork. So if you want to know all the symbolism of all the artwork, it's all Colton. So you can kind of go get all of it from him. And uh, I love that sense that we get to explore our faith. And obviously today we're thinking a little bit about the first phrase from the cross. This series is going to celebrate the sayings of Jesus from the cross, and I, I want you to understand why that matters so much. So if I were to tell you that uh, the story of God and what's happening in Scripture is a story of revelation, which means that the intent of the whole of Scripture is to reveal the truth about God. And it does that in a variety of ways. 
It, it, it is designed for us to fully understand the heart and the workings of God, of who He is and what His character is and what His compassion is and, and how He's wired and what His personality is. It, it is intent for us to become personally connected with the God of the universe. That's its whole intent. And so I, I love when people tell me, you know, that uh, they read this book, one recently called The Bible Code, that has all of these secret messages embedded down in the Scripture. Well, that's contrary to the reason it was written. It wasn't written to impart secret messages. It was written to reveal. It is a book of revelation. It is teaching us more and more and more about the heart and character of God. And while it's doing that, it is also working at revealing the heart of human beings. And let me just say this up front. Any social program, any cultural program, any program intended to make the world a better place better take into account the condition of human beings if not you are building things on sentiment that doesn't exist so when you create programs that rely on human beings to perform well all the time there could be a flaw in the plan amen because I don't know what kind of human beings you hang out with but it seems to me that the human beings I hang out with are imperfect and those are the nicest ones. Amen? Amen? And that the Scripture doesn't blink its eyes at that. It doesn't hide that. In fact, its main characters are paraded around in front of us in all of their humanity, in all of their brokenness, in all of their failure. It's not hidden away. And part of the reason it is so important for the Scripture to reveal the conditions of humanity is because without that understanding, we cannot appreciate the reality at the heart of God. And so the scripture begins in very simple terms. We find out at the very beginning that God is a creative God and it is good. And it's repeated over and over in case we miss it. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. You might not be shocked to know that through history there's been a debate about whether it's good or not. In fact, the debate still goes on today. In Jesus' time, there was something called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism believed that the spirit was good, but the flesh was evil. So all matter was evil. And then it led to a belief that it didn't really matter what you did with your physical body because it turns out that was evil anyway, as long as your spirit was okay. But the scripture says, you know, the reality of it all is that there is this intimate marriage together of God's spirit and the world that was created and the human beings in it. And he says over and over, it's good. It's good. I think we forget that sometimes. Sometimes we may look at other human beings, we may look at our culture, and we may forget that at the heart of God is this, it's good. It's good. Not everything that happens in it is good, but people, the world, creation, the beauty of it all, it's good. And then we get his names. He starts to offer us names because they reveal parts of his character. If you ever wonder why we have El Shaddai and Adonai and Jehovah Jireh and, and, and ultimately the, the ultimate name of God, Yahweh, why are these names coming at us one at a time? Because it's the earliest revelation of God. It's the earliest, simplest way in which we come to understand the characteristics. And then he roots the revelation into a narrative with the people of Israel. It's no longer esoteric and theological. Now it's real. It's people with names and places that live somewhere and are invited into experiences. And, and they go and there are miracles and there are failures and there are trials. And, and it leads us up to this moment of uh, slavery in Egypt and the exodus. And, and we recognize in the Old Testament this pillar of deliverance. 
In fact, if you just took a moment and you thought about these two incredible pillars upon which all of the revelation of the biblical story exists in the Old Testament, that is the story of the Exodus, the deliverance, and it is the story of Jesus and his death and resurrection. These two stories of deliverance hold up the entire revelatory story. Subsequent to the Exodus, we're given the law and we begin to understand the character of God in much more specific ways. And as human beings are prone to do, they, they tend to outdo God. God gives them the law, and then they build a hedge around the law, and then a hedge around that hedge, and then a hedge around that hedge. And those ten laws uh, subsequently become over 600 laws for us to try to follow. And somewhere in there, legalism and judgment takes over. And the narrative unfolds around judges and prophets, finally into kings and kingdoms, and they rise and they fall. But ultimately, we come to this revelation that is contained in the person of Jesus Christ. And what we're told by the writers of the New Testament is that this coming of Jesus has a very specific kind of revelation attached to it. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we've seen His glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of His fullness, we've all received grace in place of grace that was already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made Him known. You just have to know that the biblical writers understood that there was this Great, magnificent, epic of revelation, but in Christ is the full revelation of who God is. There's no more question, there's no more misunderstanding. You can't miss it. Paul writes it this way in Colossians 2.9, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and every authority. Now, you don't have to believe this, but you should know that the gospel writers are articulating for us this truth. All of this revelatory story, all of the work that has been done is now being fully revealed and corrected in this person, Jesus. Because somewhere, some things which were managed by human beings got off track. So Jesus very often uses this phrase, truly, I tell you. Because <laughs> you might have missed it somewhere. You might have taken a, a little merge into some places that were... Not true. And I'm going to correct. Truly, I tell you. Let me define it. Let me say it. He'll use this phrase too. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. I know you were taught this. I know your mom told you this. But it's not exactly right. It's not exactly the heart of God. But I will tell you. I will lead you. So while this revelatory process is going on in this person of Christ, that is how the narrative is written. That's how the New Testament writers think. That the ultimate purposes of God are being fulfilled in this person who the deity dwelled in bodily form, the word, the logos, the mind and character of God, the forming, uh, unifying force at the center of the universe that holds the flux of all creation and humanity in check. That force, the God, the logos, was tabernacled in human flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. And He gave us grace upon 
grace. The law came through Moses, but truth and grace came through Jesus Christ. You, you get the scope of it? It's electric in the room. It's just, a, it's just the energy of this theological stuff is just, it's just buzzing in here. So when we begin to sort of explore what that looks like, then we get into the very story of Jesus. And, and, and so the story is significant from its inception. I mean, from the moment that we hear that the silence is broken, that the 400 years of silence has come to an end, and, and the angel Gabriel visits Zechariah, and the forerunner, and John the Baptist is born, and we see uh, the Annunciation with Gabriel visiting Mary, and the birth of the Christ child, and, and, and the affirmation of Simeon and Anna, and it's all centering around this idea, this is the messianic purpose, this is the messianic fulfillment, it's all coming together, this is the, the climactic point of this whole revelatory story. Maybe you got lost back there somewhere in the parting of the Red Sea or in the plagues or somewhere and Noah bothered you or something else happened, but, but, but the climactic piece of the story was tabernacled in human flesh and dwelt among us as was born in a manger. And now we celebrate not only the birth, but the life and the teaching, truly I tell you. You've heard it said, but I say. You thought it was this, but it's really this. You shun those people, but we love them. <laughs> you, 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 you thought it was all about the temple and the structure, but I'm telling you, it's, it's about who worships in spirit and in truth. A time is coming and is now here. We won't worship on that mountain or on this one, but true followers will worship in spirit and in truth. Truly, I tell you, I'm correcting what's been messed up. And as the life of Christ unfolds and the ministry of Christ unfolds, we have this building and building and building and building until this coronation moment we call the triumphant entry where Jesus enters Jerusalem as conqueror and king. It is a coronation. We'll talk about it later in this series. The language that is used, they're the, they're the psalms of halal. They're the psalms of praise and celebration at the conquering return. They're the songs they sang from the return from Babylon. They're the songs they sang at the Maccabean Revolution. They're the songs that they sang when the kingdom is restored. And they're singing them over Christ. Here he comes. The conqueror has come. And, and we're on notice now. This entire story is reaching its climax. This entire story is reaching the moment of its destiny, the moment of its final and ultimate revelation. It's coming, and the week unfolds. The gospel writers move the sequences around a little bit about what happens and when it happens, but the teachings that take place, the cleansing of the temple, the fact that we arrive on Thursday and we are ready for the final Passover meal that Jesus will share with his disciples. The crowds have lauded him. They have praised him. They have honored him. We're told in Luke 22 that the disciples are arguing among themselves about who will be greatest in the kingdom. That in this climactic moment, in the revelatory story of God, in the theology of the Bible, where the fate of humanity literally hangs in the balance, the disciples are arguing about who will be greatest in the kingdom. Now, they've had this conversation before, and Jesus has warned them, my kingdom is not of this world. One of their mothers even comes to Jesus and says, would you assure that my sons get a good spot in the new kingdom? You remember that part of the story? 
overachieving moms. <laughs> and Jesus says, you be careful what you wish for. No, I just want my kids to be good. I want them to be smart. I want them to be in the front. I want them to get the best of the best. They will partake in ways you cannot imagine. They will participate in the new kingdom in ways you might not like. They gather for the Last Supper and the disciples because they are arguing about who will be greatest now refuse to wash one another's feet. They have washed one another's feet dozens of times. But on this night, they refuse. Jesus, knowing who he was, knowing he had come from the Father and was returning to the Father, rose from the table and took off his outer garment and wrapped a towel around himself, poured water in a basin, and he began to wash their feet. What was Jesus doing while the fate of the universe hung in the balance? What, what was Jesus revealing at the heart of God? Compassion. Kindness care. I, I think I would have given him a good talking to. I, I, I would have, you know, I've said this before. I, I, I don't know that I would have had the same spirit that I think Jesus had, a spirit of kindness and redemption, a, a, a spirit in which he said, don't you get it? Come on. Let me show you one more time what is truly at the heart of God. Let me show you one more time the compassion let me show you one more time the love. Let me show you one more time the gentleness. Let me show you one more time my genuine affection for you, even in the face of your glaring humanity, selfishness, how small your heart and mind is, how little you get of what is happening here. You call me Lord and teacher, and rightly so, for that is who I am. If I, your Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. A new command I give you that you love one another as I have loved you, so you also ought to love one another. By this will all people know that you are my disciples. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place, and if I go, I'll come again. Where are you going? Thomas said. We don't know where you're going, and we have no idea how to get there. <laughs> Thomas, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Well, why don't you just reveal to the Father? Stop playing the games, Jesus. Just reveal to the Father. Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The Father and I are one. I pray that you would be one even as we are one. It must have been disheartening to see them argue about who's greatest in the kingdom. At, at this time, at the end, after three years of pouring into them and setting the example and performing the miracles and being the mentor and being patient and correcting and teaching, They travel from the upper room through the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he asks Peter and James and John, his closest friends, will you come with me and pray? He goes a little further, and he agonizes. He cries out to the Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he comes back to find his closest friends asleep. Could you not 
pray with me just one hour? But now it's too late. And Judas arrives to place the kiss on his cheek. And the betrayal is complete and he's arrested and he's taken to the home of Caiaphas. The mockery of a trial takes place. It breaks the Jewish laws. It's not in keeping with any of what would be a legal trial. And because of the nature of what is happening, he is rushed away first to Herod. And then from there he is rushed away to Pilate. And Pilate says, I find no fault in him. His, his wife has a vision and a dream that troubles her and says, don't have anything to do with the condemnation of this man. But he sees it as an opportunity and Jesus is pulled into the middle of the politics. And the price that Pilate is willing to pay for peace with the Jews is the life of Jesus. Such a petty political moment. He's beaten. He's humiliated. And ultimately he's nailed to the cross. And now as he hangs in that space, he utters the first words from there. And this is the words that he speaks. Luke 23:33. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, "Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and the people stood watching, and the rulers sneered at him, and they said, He saved others, let him save himself if he is God, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. So so what in the revelatory story, at the ultimate moment of expression, in the fullness of Christ, who is the full embodiment of the Father, what is the truest and deepest thing at the heart of God, what he utters from the cross are these words, Father, forgive them. In the face of humanity, in the face of the weakness of humanity, of the cowardice of humanity, of the betrayal of humanity, of the failure of his friends, in the face of everything that you could possibly experience, suffering, foolishness, selfishness, politics, how does God regard the human beings involved in this travesty of justice? Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. Just three things to think about. Number one, he has the will to forgive. There are people in this room, people listening online, you need to hear me say this very clearly. The heart of God is to forgive you. Wherever you've been, whatever happened to you, however you got beat up, whatever your chronic condition is, whatever your acute condition is, However many times you failed the same way over and over, whatever your weakness, whatever your selfishness, whatever your foolishness, whatever your shame, how does God look at you and see you? Father, forgive them. He doesn't utter these words at a moment where, where there are birds singing and everything's going well and he's, you're looking at the best of humanity. He's not gazing out over a crowd. These people who are screaming for his crucifixion just a few days before were lauding him as the coming conqueror and king. He understands the fickleness of human beings. He's looking at it. He's watching it. He's hearing it. And what is his response to this behavior? Forgive them. And we're not supposed to stand in the epic and think about, man, those people were a mess. We're supposed to stand and go, among the crowd I hear 
my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Do you know? I mean, you may know that God forgives you. Have you forgiven yourself? Have you received forgiveness for whatever it is? Whatever foolishness, whatever thought, whatever weakness, whatever failure, whatever stuff, have you truly allowed Jesus to look you in the face of your humanity and say, I forgive you. I forgive you. He not only has the will to forgive, but he has the power to forgive. In this moment, we are celebrating the holiness of God. I don't know if you know this, but the Bible actually says, be holy as he is holy. Like that's going to happen. And so if that passage of Scripture means be perfect as he is perfect, then we're all in big trouble. (laughs) But holiness has another expression and another meaning, and that is hold in balance the virtues of the kingdom of God. Hold in balance the virtues of the kingdom of God. So the other definition of holiness is that God is the one who holds in perfect balance mercy and justice. If, if he just practices mercy and says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, but he doesn't pay attention to justice, then he can't be holy. That's not holiness. Holiness has to pay attention to the justice as well as the mercy. And so as he utters these words, he is in that moment paying the price for the justice that allows him to give the forgiveness, that allows him to practice the mercy. He not only has the will to forgive, but he has the power to forgive. Because in this moment, the one who is innocent is paying the price for all of the failures and weaknesses, for the humanity, for the division. That's why we sing the song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He, he washed it white as snow. He has the will to forgive. He has the power to forgive. And the third thing is this. He then invites you and I to forgive. Like for real. To forgive. It turns out that forgiveness is good for you. Like it's one of the fascinating things to me right now in modern psychology that that one of the attributes that now modern psychologists help their clients pursue for good mental health is forgiveness. (laughs) If you want to be a fully integrated human being, meaning you want your mind and your heart and your, you know, everything to work together, forgive. Forgive. Practice forgiveness. Practice forgiveness. And I don't know about you, but that's hard, isn't it? Because I don't know if you've noticed this, but people are imperfect. And that's on their good days. Amen? And sometimes they're selfish and they betray you. And they hurt you and they wound you and they use words against you and they're fickle and they're odd. Any plan for humanity that doesn't take into account the condition of human beings isn't a very good plan. But this plan takes into account the weakness and the meanness and the selfishness of human beings. 
And that Jesus stood into the face of that, into the teeth of it, as it came at him. Not symbolically, vividly. Real nails, real pain, real suffering, real scorn. Real betrayal, real politics, real pettiness. Angering. And the heart of God says, forgive them. Is that who we are? Is that how we think? Is that how we behave? Is that how we regard this culture in which we live? Are we full of forgiveness and grace? Do we receive it? It was so important that Jesus said, when you pray from now on, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us this day of our trespasses even as we forgive those who trespass against us. And Jesus says, listen, if you're praying to your father and you remember you have something against your brother, leave your gift at the altar and go make it right with them. Because this vertical relationship with God is deeply connected to this horizontal relationship we share with each other. You've heard it said, love those who love you, but I tell you, love those who are your enemies, who use you spitefully, who persecute you. Sometimes we ask the question, why has the church lost its voice in the modern world? Maybe it's this piece right here. We've forgotten to fully embrace the forgiveness and transformation. And it's not just forgiveness like this, I'm going to bury some stuff and we'll cover it over. It's like anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. I will bury your failures in the sea of my forgetfulness. I, I think that must mean this. God, would you please forgive me for this? Oh, God, you remember that thing we were talking about a minute ago? No. No, I don't remember what you're talking about. I buried it in the sea of my forgetfulness because you are a new creation. As you confess and receive forgiveness, you're a new creation. Can you extend that grace to, the, to others? Can you extend that grace to people who, who have failed you, who, uh, who, who get on TV and talk about stuff you don't agree with or, or make statements in the public eye? Can we, can we be people who genuinely have received the forgiveness of Christ and because we are recipients of this grace upon grace, then we offer grace upon grace to the people around us? Well, you don't know how bad they are. Yeah, I, yeah, they're annoying. And many of them are wrong. <laughs> and we'll be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We'll, we'll, we'll move them towards a God who has some power to transform and change them. But it'll be the Holy Spirit and the power of God that has that process of transformation and change. It won't be me. It won't be because I've said these things. In fact, I'm instructed very specifically to let no unwholesome talk come out of my mouth except what's suitable for the building up of others that it may edify those who listen. So I may have to speak differently about people. In fact, it probably would be good that I don't really talk about people at all unless I have something good to say. And when I earn the right and someone asks me, I can speak the truth in love in a relationship that has some depth and power and equity and meaning and purpose. 
We're going to close this service partaking of communion together, and it's such an appropriate way to share because this is a moment of repentance. You don't need to be a member of this church, just that you have confessed sins and received forgiveness. And this is what I want to encourage you with. I believe that some folks in this room and folks online, folks who will watch through the course of this week, could use a little unburdening. You know what I'm saying? Maybe you're carrying around something inside of you that is breaking your heart, and you don't have to carry it anymore. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. But he didn't die for us on our best day. He he died in the face of our weakness and failure and shame and addictions and all of it, all of it. And he loves you. You do not have to carry out the guilt and the pain and the sorrow. And you can leave it. You can absolutely leave it and receive the forgiveness. When we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Cleanse us. Make us new. And in an hour when somebody taps you on the shoulder and you feel those feelings and think those thoughts again and go, here we go, here we go. Nothing changed. You just say, no, no, no. I held the blood and the body of Christ, those symbols in my hands, and, and I partook because God knew I would need more than just things happening in my head. I'd need something to hold and touch and taste that represents the grace of God given to me to heal me from the inside out. And I participated and I claim it. And Satan, leave me alone. I don't want to carry it around anymore. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. And others of us need to go, I'm going to forgive some people because it is baggage I am carrying and I am exhausted from carrying around my hate and my anger and my bitterness. And I just want to forgive, even as I've been forgiven. Let's pray. God, we're thankful. We're thankful that you have constructed the story that reveals the heart of God, and it's not in a moment, it's an epic that sweeps over thousands of years through millions of lives to climactic moments when the truest and deepest part of the heart and soul of God, truly I tell you, utters phrases like this, Father, forgive them. I speak that forgiveness over this crowd. I, I speak that forgiveness over those that are watching online for each of us as we confess to you our sins. Remind us that in the very teeth of our humanity, at the very worst, you love us and you meet our failure with forgiveness. And so we confess to you our sins. And we pray not only for this forgiveness, that folks who are doing significant work in these moments would reach out this afternoon, send an email, make a phone call, call a pastor, connect with somebody, let's talk, let's grow, let's do work together. But not only do we receive the forgiveness we offer it, we pray that you would bring to our minds those that need our forgiveness.
those that we need to forgive. Would you, through these elements, empower our understanding of our own forgiveness and our ability and desire to forgive others? Would you apportion grace to each person as there is need? We dedicate these elements to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Everyone said together, Amen. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was broken for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life, take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you. The blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve you blameless unto everlasting life, take and drink in remembrance that Christ died for you, and be thankful. Now, God, we pray that you would continue. Speak your heart, your mind, your spirit into each one of us. And now as we respond to your word, I, I pray that we would celebrate the truth of who you are. Go with us, we pray. Hear our response in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.